Good morning. Hope you're okay. We uh, always have fun this kind of weather, don't we? You kind of look outside, you think, is it as bad as it looks? And I go outside with a, a broom and brush the car, the snow off the car, because I know that many people don't, but it's a driving offense to drive with snow on your car. Did you know that? Mm. And be because I'm instinctively cautious and uh, was brought up in such a way as to obey rules, I always brush the snow off my car. Is that how you were brought up? Or, or do you have a kind of rebellious streak? You know, the one that says, well, I know, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, I'm not going to rob a bank, but I'm not going to brush the snow off my car either. <laughs> we're different people, aren't we? Different people, different temperaments, different ways of looking at things. And the beauty of it all is, uh, as I'll come to towards the end of what I want to say this morning, the beauty of it all is that God, <laughs> God beckons us different people. He, he throws his arms out wide to us and says, crazy though you are, Ordinary though you may be, extraordinary though you certainly are, whatever you are, my grace is sufficient for you. Isn't that fantastic? Yeah. The song we've just sung, I know I often say this, but the song we've just sung really is one of my all-time favorites. Just, just magnificent. And the song I'm going to finish with is my funeral song. I'm not dead yet, but um, <laughs> when I die, I want it at my funeral. Okay. You'll understand why. We're nearing the end of our series in Hebrews. Um, funny enough, in, in writing the devotionals, I'm, I'm a little bit ahead, and the very last one is on the last Sunday of the year on Hebrews. In writing the devotionals, I gave it the heading, Goodbye Hebrews, um, because it's all about goodbyes. But some of you may be thinking this is a long, 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 long time in Hebrews. But let me read from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 to 14. Following on from uh, what Andy preached on last week, the earlier verses, in which it, it talked about the practicalities of discipleship in the light of God being a consuming fire. In, uh, in verse 7 of Hebrews 13, we find these words. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate, to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. When Andy asked me to preach, uh, he sent me a message saying it's a very eclectic passage. Uh, if you don't know what the word eclectic means, it means there's an awful lot of bits and pieces in there. Yeah? And there are, and I want to kind of push through some of the early ones to major on, on two things at the end. But we'll start with what I would describe as this and that. 
a few things that the writer refers to. Starts by saying, remember your leaders. How could we forget? How could we forget our leaders? Eh? It's a strange thing. Uh, most of you will know that according to Scripture, those who would teach uh, are judged by God in terms of, uh, not in terms of their eternal destiny, but in terms of their rewards at a higher, a higher level than the rest. And that, that's very sobering. And, and those who have leadership responsibilities in the church bear an incredible, an incredible load. I was watching Andy yesterday, uh, wedding yesterday. It was fantastic. Was it fantastic? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the most nervous and on edge person in the whole building was Andy. I know because I've been there many, many times doing weddings. You're thinking, is that right? Is that, is that done? Is that done? And oh, yeah, and I've, got, I've got to get up the front then. I've got to look calm and I've got to look in control and I mustn't mess up the vows. Yeah, some of you know I once got the bride's name wrong in the vows, and uh, it didn't go down too well, really. <laughs> I was forgiven. Uh, speaking of which, of course, um, just a couple of yesterday, I once got Callum's name wrong when I prayed for them and called him Connor. Uh, so as I was leaving yesterday, I shook hands with him and said, what's your name again? He said, Colin. <laughs> Remember your leaders. Yeah, uh, the Bible says here, consider their lives, imitate their faith. It's not suggesting that we have perfect leaders. Uh, there aren't any. But those who are called to leadership are called to leadership because of their maturity. At least ought to be called to leadership because of their maturity in Christ. Yes, the giftedness matters, but there's a secondary issue. It's a secondary issue. The primary issue is do they walk with God? Uh, are they comparatively faithful. And I just want to put on record here, maybe it's, I don't know if Andy asked me to preach so he didn't have the embarrassment of, you know, I don't know. We've got great leaders. Celebrated, you know. I, I, could, I, I could introduce you to churches that haven't. Um, I, I could introduce you to churches that have got people in leadership who actually are about their own agenda and about their own fame, and it's tragic. And I can introduce you to churches which are controlled by a family. And you're okay as long as you agree with whatever the family say. It's one of the pitfalls of smaller churches very often. But we're blessed here. Our elders are not perfect. Okay? You're allowed to disagree with them. You really are. But what you're not allowed to do is disrespect them because God has called them to a ministry that is an incredible responsibility and an incredible privilege. Um, so remember... Imitate their faith. Now, probably this is the point where all our elders start ducking under the chair because they'd be the first to admit that actually they don't always get it right. Uh, there'll be aspects that they battle with. I understand that. But the issue is this. They continue to battle and they stay on the right side of trusting in the faithfulness of God and knowing his grace and forgiveness. They don't wallow in, oh, I'm such a failure. Oh, dear. Oh, they allow God to pick them up when they stumble. That's actually the difference, by and large, between the rest of us and leadership. Recognizing that God means what he says when he says his grace is sufficient. Uh, so, you know, have faith like that. Uh, going on, the Bible says Jesus doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, Forever. Fantastic. And I always think that's a strange little verse. And it's only a strange little verse in its context because 
in, in, certainly in the reading I was, uh, I was, or the Bible I was reading from, it's a, it's kind of separates it from the next line, and it shouldn't be. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. There are some weird, well, there always have been weird and wonderful teachings, you know. Uh, if you read some of the early church fathers and what they wrote, and uh, some of these, really? You know? The idea that uh, when, uh, in the story of the Good Samaritan, when the Samaritan gave the innkeeper two coins, they were meant to be symbolic of baptism and communion. Yeah, that's seriously what one of the early church fathers taught. It's balmy. It's, it's ludicrous. But in other things, the guy was good. You know, so, so what I'm saying is biblical doctrine doesn't change. We can understand it differently in different contexts, but the fundamentals of it doesn't change. We're privileged in that we actually have the scriptures to learn from and to grow from. The early church had the apostles teaching with the apostles there with them. We have the apostles teaching through the scriptures. All right. And, and it cannot be overridden by any culture. Certainly Western culture today, which is increasingly miles away from Christian teaching, and if the church moves that way, it is dishonoring God. But it's not just that culture, any culture. Uh, the, the culture of formalism, the culture of traditionalism. Uh, it was great yesterday, wasn't it? The church was facing that way. The way it was made originally. Some people were thinking, yes, in some ways I preferred it, not in others. All right? But not only that, we were all in seats well. The ladies went, but suits and, suits and ties. And I thought, it's like church years ago. Whoa. Then I thought, well, maybe not. Whoa, after all. Lots of cultures, lots of things which, which are part of the backdrop against which the gospel is set, but must never become that which defines how the gospel or the truth of God is expressed. Because that does not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. The same today, he'll be the same forever. That which he taught does not change, and that which the church is called to follow does not change under any circumstances. And then uh, carrying on with these things, it says, be strengthened by grace rather than by ritual and routine, essentially is what's being said here. Uh, we've just been through one of our church rituals. <gasps> well, yes, it is, because we do it. A ritual is anything which you do regularly. Okay, uh, a ritual is the fact that we gather here at uh, 11 o'clock. Well, let's be honest, five past 11 on a, <laughs> on a Sunday morning, you know. Uh, it's a ritual. Nothing wrong with ritual. We can't survive without it. We are creatures who need a measure of habit. And this one is something that Jesus himself told us to do. Nothing wrong with that. But when the process becomes the center of our lives, rather than that which it points to, We've got a problem. So the writer's saying, look, talk to these Hebrew Christians who'd come out of, of, of a Hebrew background with all the ritual of the animal sacrifice and all that sort of stuff. He's saying, look, let your heart be strengthened by grace, by faith, by the reality, the heart of God's love, rather than all the trappings that surround it. And then Jesus shed blood is mentioned, which of course... We've also looked at the context of this table, which the writer describes as not just the key to salvation, but to holiness, to actually walking in the righteousness which is 
God's gift to us in Jesus Christ. Uh, the old hymn writer expressed it with the words, be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. The sacrifice of Jesus is not there just to, just to forgive us. The sacrifice of Jesus is there that the, the power of sin in our lives might be broken, that we might grow in holiness to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That's quite a lot of this and that, and every one of those things could have been a full sermon. Uh, but what, what God really got hold of me about were, were two things towards the end, and I, I want to major on those. We're told, uh, the writer says that the high priest carries the blood of animals into the holy place as a sin offering. Now, uh, the most holy place. So he, he's talking about that day of atonement when the high priest once a year was able to go into the holy of holies with the, the blood of the sacrifice to offer atonement for the sins of the people. What happened to the animals from that sacrifice? They had to be taken outside the camp originally, outside the city after that, to, to be destroyed, to be, to, to be burnt. Because the, the blood of the sacrifice was offered, there can't be anything left. That has, to, that has to go. And he likens that to what happened to Jesus, that Jesus actually suffered outside the camp. The cross of Jesus wasn't in the middle of the city, it was outside. Uh, the old hymn writer, outside a city wall. Yeah? And he's, the writer's trying to say, look, the sacrifice of Jesus, humanly speaking, is a total disgrace. He was, he was disgraceful in the eyes of people. He was outside. He was hung on a cross to die. The, the scriptures say that uh, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. All right, that's from Deuteronomy uh, 20, 21, and it's picked up again in Galatians chapter 3 in relationship to Jesus. And it's one reason why Jewish people find it very difficult to, to, to come to terms with Jesus Christ, because how can God be cursed? How can Christians believe that Jesus was the Son of God if everyone who dies by crucifixion is cursed? It's getting your head around the fact that he was. He bore our curse. He took it on himself. He took the, the curse that was ours. He was disgraceful for us. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, now the writer says, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Uh, we we don't, mind, don't mind telling people we're Christians uh, if it's a positive thing, do we? Come to the carol service. People like carols. Well, not everybody, but lots of people like carols. We've got some in this room. I'm too fond of them, but I won't, won't name names. People come, carol service, yes, church, hey. But when we come to sharing a gospel which begins with the word repent, which was the first word of John the Baptist, the first word of Jesus, what Peter said when the people said, what shall we do? What Paul said to the church, other people in Athens when he was talking to them, that, that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. When we say it means you've got to change, oof, you have no right to tell me what to do. You heard that? Mm. Well, in ourselves, we don't. 
But the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the one who gave his life for all and rose from the dead, the one who has opened the door of salvation, has said to this people of his, go and tell them. Go and tell them. So actually, we have every right. It's just that people don't recognize it. We don't have a right to do it in a deliberately callous and hurtful and disrespectful way. That's a different issue altogether. But we have every right to do it. And we'll bear the disgrace for it. Uh, across the world now, many people are bearing the disgrace for it in ways that we don't have to face yet. Uh, imprisonment, death. We just have to cope with people thinking we're balmy or getting a bit cross with us, by and large. Being a Christian doesn't necessarily make us popular. Often the reverse, we're going to be ridiculed, we may be persecuted. And the encouragement to persevere is written all the way through this book of Hebrews. Do you remember that? Those who've been through the course, persevere, keep going, persevere, run the race, run the race, run the race, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. Yeah, that's, that's what Hebrews is all about. Keep it going, keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. Why? Why? I mean, it's not, uh, it's not an easy life, is it? In Acts 5.41, the apostles, having, having been flogged, said, or it says of them that the apostles rejoiced to be worthy of suffering disgrace with Jesus. I've been persecuted. Whoop! Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting the way forward is like a man I know who decided he was going to go to Glasgow to do some street preaching so he could get himself arrested because he wanted to suffer for Jesus. Uh, now, that's not the point. Uh, going to Glasgow to do some street preaching is fine if that's God's call on your life. The objective is not to get arrested. The objective is not to be persecuted. The objective is not to suffer. But if that's what comes with the call of God on our lives, then it's a sign of God's approval, and we need to rejoice in it. Really? Yeah. And then finally, the reason why, what on earth, actually nothing, but what, what makes all this worthwhile? I'm going to get excited now for a little while. Here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Okay, okay. This concept mentioned frequently in the book of Hebrews. If you remember Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16, talking about all these great heroes of the faith. All these people were still living by faith when they died, which I still think is one of the most funny verses imaginable, because if they died, they weren't still living. Anyway, that's another point. Uh, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you remember that? Do you remember Joel two weeks ago? Hebrews 12, 
talking about uh, the difference between the old covenant, the new covenant, not Mount Zion, uh, uh, sorry, not, uh, not the old mountain, but Mount Zion, he says this in 12, uh, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You've come to the city of God. Are you into cities, by the way? I hate them. I remember when I was a child thinking, I read past about City of God, I think, City? City? You start in a garden and you finish in a city? That's progress? Uh, Newcastle's all right, by the way. As long as you don't have to drive in it, it's fine. I like the country. I like small communities. I like to know people, I like to, people to know me and so on. But we're talking about a different scale here at all. When we're talking about the city of God, we're talking about that which is perfect. We're talking about, uh, if you like the imagery, uh, we're talking about pavements that don't have cracks, that you can't fall over. We're talking about pavements that have been dug up 55 times and roads that don't have potholes. We're not talking about cities the way we know them. We're talking about that which is perfect, that which is beautiful. In fact, the Bible says, well, let me tell you what the, let me let the Bible tell you what, the, what it says. Pictures in Revelation. Now, I know the book of Revelation is largely pictorial language, trying to describe that which is indescribable in many ways. But it's the language God, God has chosen to reveal to us what is to come. This is the language. So in Revelation 21, 1 to 4, it says this, part of John's vision in, uh, on the Isle of Patmos. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the uh, first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And a little bit later in the same chapter, on the similar theme, from verse 9 to verse 14, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates in the east, three in the north, three in the south, and three in the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Yesterday, Andy was preaching at, uh, at the wedding, and uh, he used some of these passages of Scripture, and he pointed out that the whole marriage thing, 
uh, was a, uh, meant to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. This is part of what he read in Ephesians 5, from verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing and water through the word, and to present her to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, without any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The church is both the home, sorry, the, the, the holy city of God, the New Jerusalem, is both the home of the church, but also the church is that city. Now, this is where it goes beyond the imagery, all right? The church of Jesus Christ is the love of his life. Really, the love of his life. If, if, if you could talk to Jesus now and say, what is your greatest love? He would say, the church. Now, the nearest we can get to what is to come now is right here in this room, or it ought to be. The nearest this world can see, uh, will get to see what is to come is when it looks at the church, or it ought to. What a calling. Do you fancy being a bride? I used to often say in my preaching, when women used to object to the fact that the Bible says we're all going to be sons of God, I used to say, don't worry, we're, all us fellows are going to be part of the bride of Christ as well. This is, this is astonishing. It's not, it's not about me and my salvation. I mean, it is. It's not about you and your salvation. It's about you and your relationship with God and that being the center of everything. That is the starting point to this and the relationship with Jesus, which is the center of everything, which lasts through all eternity. Now, I don't know if I'm expressing myself well or not, but uh, we have a home waiting for us that is so magnificent it can't adequately be described. The imagery is beyond our ability to grasp fully. But as the church, we are the bride of Christ and also the city of God which is being prepared, which will finally be revealed when Jesus returns. He's going to bring his people with him, and that's going to be such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sight. No sorrow, no tears, no sin, no death. United with all God's people, all those heroes of the faith. You know, Paul said, Paul said of Christians, if in this life only we have hope, we're of all people most miserable. And that, to be quite honest, has explained an awful lot of Christians that I've met over the years. This life's unfair. Oh, it's got great perks, don't get me wrong. I'm blessed beyond measure in all sorts of ways, and so are you. But this life is unfair. It's not the way it was meant to be. And if we think we're at home here, or begin to feel at home here in the wrong sense, we're foolish in the extreme. You don't belong here. I don't belong here. I belong in the city of God. Look up. Look up, church. Your home is waiting. Jesus went to get your place ready. Wasn't I thinking about this that, uh, to, at this time that I realized that when Jesus said to the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I've always thought of that, oh, that's nice. Jesus has gone to get my room ready. That's, that's true, yeah. 
But actually, he was saying to his disciples, I've gone to prepare, I'm going to prepare a place for you, for you. Yes, church now is meant to be the nearest you can get on earth to experience some of it. But oh, how great it's going to be. How magnificent it's going to be. Jesus is coming and he will, he will bring with, his, with him the complete and a holy bride of Christ. And I want to ask you the question, are you looking for a city? Are you looking for the city that is to come? Or is your life content raveled up in all the mysteries and difficulties of living here? Because if you can't see beyond what is now, you're living the life that God didn't want you to live. If you, if you can't see beyond to, to what is awaiting for you, you're missing the whole point of, of, of why the Bible is expressing it this way. You know, why is it worth bearing disgrace with Jesus? Because one day we're going to bear glory with him. Nearly finished. Names are important. This is, uh, other than the Bible, my biggest spiritual tool. It's my Salvation Army songbook. And I was given it when I was 12 years old. Presented to Stuart Woodward for good conduct, diligence, and regular attendance. Obtained 104 marks out of a possible 104. <laughs> and there's the signatures of the commanding officer, the young people sergeant major, and they spelt my name wrong. <laughs> oh, it says Stuart Woodward, but I'm S-T-U-A-R-T. Doesn't matter, does it? Well, yes, it does, actually. Oh, it doesn't matter for this, though at the time I was a bit peeved. But it does, because God knows my name. And he doesn't get it wrong. When I was a child, my mother, uh, my brother, funny enough, shared the same illustration last Sunday as this. My mother would go through uh, the first three verses of Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, the old hymn, with us before we went to bed, when we were tiny, tiny tots. I don't know if you know it, it's actually Charles Wesley wrote it, which not many people realize. But the first verses, you know, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, Look Upon a Little Child, Pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. Second verse. Fain, I never did understand what fain meant, but it basically meant sort of, yeah, yeah, I'd like to, anyway. Fain I would to thee be brought. Gracious Lord, forbid it not. In the kingdom of thy grace, give a little child a place. What a verse to be brought up on. Yeah? Not done with this yet. Hang on. When I was about, uh, before I met Betty, actually, it was uh, the, the May before I met Betty, I was in, in Betty's hometown of South End with the Salvation Army from Luton. We were doing meetings there, and uh, I was due to sing in a male voice quartet. I never got to sing because uh, my voice had gone. Somebody else took my place. But we were going to sing a song by one of the greatest Christian poets of all time, but nobody knows about him unless you're in the Salvation Army. 
an old general of the Salvation Army called Albert Osborne. And the song was, I know thee who thou art. But listen, please, to the last verse. Let nothing draw me back or turn my heart from thee. But on the Calvary track, bring me at last to see the courts of God, that city fair, and find my name is written there. I want to ask you a very straightforward question. Do you know this morning that your name is written there? To put the imagery another way, a uh, great wedding yesterday, and I thrilled a bit to get invited into the cake reception, yeah? I didn't get an invite to the big one. Quite rightly as well, you know. I'm not that close to them, and you know, uh, but guess what? I've got an invite to the biggest one. And when you go to a, a wedding reception, you look for your name place, don't you? You look, where am I sitting? Where am I sitting? There it is. There it is. At the marriage supper of the Lamb of God, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, the name place is waiting for you even now. I believe that with all my heart. I belong. I don't belong here. I belong there. And it's going to be Magnificent. So, do you, name, do you know your name is written there? Do you realize that your place is set at the wedding banquet? And are you ready to be part of the most glorious reality imaginable? Other than God himself, the church of Jesus Christ is and will be the most glorious, glorious, glorious thing imaginable. You may have gathered, it excites me. Some of you in this room will thinking, hey, I can share a bit of that. Some of you will think, what's he on about? If you're in the former, please get more excited. <laughs> if you're in the latter, I'm on about the most important thing in the whole of the Christian message. Jesus died, he rose, but for a reason. And the reason was that we might be with him. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Just thank you, really. That ordinary people like us, people who've made a mess of so many things, saved by your grace and with nothing to offer except what you give us, the ordinary people like us have been invited to be part of that most glorious, glorious, glorious marriage supper. To be part of that city which will just take the breath away of everybody who ever sees it. Lord, fill our hearts with hope and expectation and help us to be a people who are constantly looking for the city that is to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.